This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by frequent contributor to PRA and Religion Dispatches and self-described ex-evangelical Chrissy Stroop to map the terrain of Christian homeschooling and Christian schools in the broader movement for Christian dominionism, or the theocratic idea that Christians are called by God to exercise dominion over every aspect of society by taking control of political and cultural institutions. With her firsthand experience of Christian schooling and her investigative reporting on its homeschooling correlate, Chrissy provides a fascinating look at the movement from within and its dominionist influence beyond. An ex-evangelical writer, speaker, and advocate, Chrissy Stroop is, with Lauren O'Neill, co-editor of the essay anthology, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. A senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches and a weekly columnist for Open Democracy, her work has also appeared in Political Research Associates, Foreign Policy, The Boston Globe, Playboy, Day Magazine, and other outlets, including peer-reviewed academic journals. Stroop has a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford University and was previously a senior research associate with the University of Innsbruck's Post-Secular Conflicts Project. In 2019, she came out as a transgender woman and began her journey of medical transition. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining us today on Inform Your Resistance. It's so nice to talk with you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Koki. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm just going to get us started. Uh, so I wanted to start today's conversation by acknowledging that not all homeschooling is related to a Christian political agenda, and that for some, homeschooling is a necessity born from inadequate public options for children with special needs or is a ch- choice made for instance, by families who place a greater weight on experiential, possibly naturalistic learning. Before we work on identifying some of the driving reasons for these conditions, what are the conditions of U.S. public schooling that compel non-Christian nationalist families to operate outside, outside its bounds? And how prevalent are these families, parents, and advocacy movements for homeschooling and homeschooling deregulation? So I think I'll, I'll try to answer the second question first, which is, basically because I don't think we have any way to know that at the moment. The data has never been great on um, how many people are homeschooling for what reasons. The most recent data that was probably good that I I saw in a report from a couple of years ago suggests that it's still, you know, 
somewhere north of 50% of, you know, homeschooling is done for uh, religious ideological reasons. It still seems to be well more than half, actually. I don't remember the exact figures, but they're probably outdated by now anyway, uh, particularly since so many more people have been trying homeschooling. And I don't think we have good data about um, their their motivations. But what I can also say to that is that right-wing Christian organizations still have a, a corner on things like homeschooling conventions, curricula. In many states and localities, they dominate the local homeschooling co-ops. So they have an outsized presence and there's a danger of radicalization there. Uh, but what are some of the other you know, uh, valid reasons for pulling uh, kids out of public schools in order to homeschool them? I mean, there can be a lot of them. So I, I certainly understand why some people argue that ideally all kids should be in public schools. You know, there's a certain sort of civic idealism there that I can appreciate, but also conditions in the United States are uneven. Uh, public schooling is very inequitable, uh, extremely inequitably funded. You know, there's a teacher crisis in a lot uh, of localities because teaching doesn't pay enough and teachers are burdened with new uh, requirements to teach tests that they didn't necessarily always used to be. So there's a lot of problems with public education. So for some parents, they may have kids who are bullied for various reasons. They might be queer or just seem different, or they might be uh, people of color, BIPOC people, and their kids are being bullied by racist white kids. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, again, in, in these very uneven conditions across the United States, there are some fantastic public school districts, and, and there are some very bad ones. Uh, and also a lot of school districts may not be able to accommodate um, special needs ad children adequately, right? So uh, for those kinds of, of reasons, I absolutely understand why uh, certain parents would, would want to uh, educate their kids outside of the public school system. And, and I think those would typically be the kinds of parents who would handle that responsibly because uh, they're trying to do what's best for their kids, you know. And well, I suppose Christian nationalists also think they're trying to do what's best for their kids, but they're not. <laughs> so just to clarify, so you think more than 50% are Christian nationalist homeschooling families? I, I think that's still likely true, but I do think that number is probably declining. Um, okay. I certainly anecdotally see a lot more discussions of uh, people homeschooling for other reasons these days. But what I can say is that in, in many parts of the country, it can still be difficult to, um, to find co-ops that are not right-wing Christian. And it, it's still somewhat tricky to find good homeschooling curricula and resources too, but it's getting easier. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a positive thing. I mean, given just the, the reality of the situation and homeschooling will be best for, for some kids, you know, you want it to be uh, accessible. You want resources to be available so that they can get, you know, at least as robust an education at home as they could get in a good public school. And, you know, I, I think many parents are doing their best to handle that well and probably are handling it well. Um, but the big issue that I have with the way that homeschooling works in the United States is just it's it's been almost completely deregulated since the 1980s, thanks largely to the lobbying efforts of the Homeschool Legal Defense uh, Association, which, as I've said many times, is the single most important Christian right lobby that you've never heard of. And, you mm -hmm. know, more people yeah. 
need to hear about it and understand what it what it does. Yeah, that's a, that's really helpful context. I think that you paint a clear picture that this is not, you know, we're not talking about the whole homeschooling community um, when we're talking about Christian homeschooling. Um, a significant percentage, certainly one that's very hard to know exactly um, the, the character of. But from what we do know about Christian homeschooling and also its corollary Christian private schools, um, I'd like to take some time to understand from you what the realities for students in this world are, what are their day-to-day education and lives like. And then also this is big picture and we'll take some time here, but the long game for Christian homeschooling movement and the uh, Christian private schools. What's the dominionist agenda that drives the material and political investment in Christian education? Mm-hmm. Let's see. To start with, sort of what what is the reality like for people uh, in these sorts of situations? I think there are some broad commonalities that we can speak to across the country, and also there are also some some differences in terms of state regulations that uh, apply. But for the most part, you know, homeschooling and and Christian schools, private Christian schools, are uh, very unre- unregulated. Uh, very seriously underregulated, almost not regulated at all. Um, and, you know, some states have more requirements than others. In theory, uh, some, some states might enforce their requirements uh, a little more vigorously than other states where they might, in theory, have certain requirements for, you know, records keeping, for parents to file records with the local school district. Uh, but there may not be any enforcement mechanism so for the most part, it's pretty easy for uh, parents to just sort of disappear a kid from the U.S. public school system with no accountability. Um, and some parents will take that responsibility seriously, file all the things and, and do it right, uh, make sure that their kids, um, you know, can get all of their different government IDs and also get um, a, d- a diploma with college preparatory diploma, you know, if, if possible. And other parents will actually use homeschooling to um, keep their children strictly under their control in a very unhealthy way. And we're talking about people in the quiverful movement, that sort of thing, or quiverful adjacent. There aren't too many people who directly identify with, with the term. Um, but they, they use homeschooling to indoctrinate their children uh, oftentimes they, they use it as a cover for physical and sometimes sexual abuse. Um, they isolate their kids and, you know, I'm not sure off the top of my head if any state actually requires, uh, correct me if I'm, maybe you know, but, uh, if any state requires children to, uh, who are homeschooled to see a mandatory reporter, and that would be a very sensible thing to do once or twice a year, at least, you know, uh, make sure that that's happening. Because some parents are unsafe and some children are not um, not getting their needs met and being abused. Uh, and, and if the responsible parents would support just a little more oversight, it would make a big difference. Um, so, Chrissy, you talk about how homeschool families essentially disappear kids from public schools. And in th- doing that, they're essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, disappearing kids from state oversight, from the public sphere, unless there is state-by-state regulation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, in Indiana, for example, which is where I'm from, if you take a kid out of the public school system, at least in high school, you're supposed to file 
a form so that the state knows, but does anyone really follow up on that? I, I don't think so. And, um, and Indiana's pretty typical in that regard. It was recently ranked by um, an organization called Homeschooling Plus, which is uh, a branch of the uh, ABC Mouse Company as the number one state for homeschooling in the United States, uh, along with Idaho. They were tied at number one for re some reasons that I consider probably good reasons and some reasons that are bad. You know, homeschooling advocacy organizations tend to oppose um, what I would consider very sensible protective regulations for kids. So Indiana has hardly any regulations and, you know, the homeschooling advocacy organizations love that. But apparently Indiana also has, uh, you know, good access for responsible parents to uh, things like, you know, uh, sports and extracurricular activities in the, in the local school district so that kids who are homeschooled can participate in those. And that's a good thing, uh, you know. Um, and when it comes to your question about, you know, homeschooling in Christian schools and what is what are things like there, I should say there is kind of a lot of overlap. You know, some parents who want to keep their kids away from what um, evangelical Christians and other right wing Christians call, quote, the world, which is basically every space and every milieu, you know, that is not entirely under their control. Uh, they do sometimes let their kids go and participate in uh, extracurricular activities at local Christian schools. Now, when I say Christian schools, um, there's obviously a wide variety there. Uh, some Catholic schools, for example, are, um, you know, they provide a very high quality education uh, with, you know, some religious indoctrination. But um, when I say Christian schools, usually I'm thinking of schools run by evangelicals. And um, because they call themselves Christian schools or Christian academies, because as with evangelicals, pretty much in general, they're trying to claim a monopoly on the Christian label, right? They think they're the only ones who really get it right. So they like to just call themselves Christians. Uh, so, you know, I went to two Christian schools in my childhood, um, Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis and Colorado Springs Christian School in, of course, um, Colorado Springs. I was there for a few years in the 90s in middle school. That's right where, uh, right when, you know, Focus on the Family was moving there and it was turning into this big, like, evangelical center. And those kinds of Christian schools, uh, they're very ideologically rigid at, at best. You know, even when they offer a college prep diploma as, you know, Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, which I graduated from, does and foreign language instruction and things like that. And they boast about getting better average SAT scores than the surrounding public schools. Uh, of course, money has a lot to do with that and, uh, and privilege. Uh, and, they, and they boast about their college placement rates, but they try to funnel kids into evangelical colleges as well. So I call that the elite culture warrior track, you know, uh, because what they want to happen there is for you to get those credentials and, and then, you know, either go into uh, right-wing lobbying slash ministry. And obviously those are the same thing as they certainly can be, right? And uh, so they want you to either, you know, do that or, or fund the people who do, right? That's the elite culture warrior track. And, and um, but clearly you go to a place like that, you get better opportunities, you have more chances to escape than if you're more strictly isolated, which is sometimes the case in um, little church schools or, you know, schools that only use like the Abeka, Bob Jones or Accelerated Christian Education curricula, which are sometimes used for homeschooling as well. 
And when you're in the Christian school environment like I was, you know, you'll sometimes see kids come in in high school who were homeschooled up to that point or kids go in and out or you do some activities with homeschooled kids. Um, so, yeah, that can happen. Um, but the same sort of messaging that you're getting and the kind of mobilization for, uh, you know, right wing political activism is probably going to happen for a lot of, of kids in, in both of these environments, Christian homeschooling or or Christian schools. For example, um, Heritage Christian, uh, when I was there and after, and maybe still, but I'd have to check, um, they would send us as juniors and seniors in high school on field trips to these conventions for um, an organization that at the time was called Citizens Concerned for the Constitution. And it was kind of a, you know, tea party before the tea party sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and that organization has since rebranded itself, but it still exists. And it's called Advance America. Classy. Sounds like a payday loan company. But, uh, you know, it, it bills itself on its website as uh, Indiana's premier, you know, pro-family, pro-homeschooling, pro-Christian schools organization. Right. So uh, when we went to those conventions, we they, they had like video messages from um you know, national Republican politicians. They had local Republican speakers, I would call it. Sort of a hands-on, illiberal civics lesson. We picked up their voter guides and then on school time, stuffed those voter guides into envelopes. So the school sent them out as direct mail to the parents and alumni network. And, you know, these voter guides don't say vote Republican, but they say this candidate supports abortion, you know. And, And the messaging that you're getting in these environments is, you know, true Christians must stop the liberals from letting gay people have rights and killing babies. I mean, and that's drilled into your head, at least the killing babies part from the time you're like five years old or even before. So true Christians always vote Republican. If you're a really spiritual Christian, you have to believe in six day young earth creationism, literally, you know, the right wing activism, right wing politicization, is just built into it. That goes for both the homeschooling and the Christian schooling environments and the predominant curricula that are used in both, which often are the same curricula. And then there's other, you know, illiberal aspects of this. I mean, in Christian schools, kids typically say three pledges, not one, but three. Every more, I think it's bad enough that in public schools, you know, kids have to say the pledge to the American flag. And in theory, they don't have to. Or like legally, you have a right to opt out. But let me tell you, in a little school district in Alabama, Texas, Indiana, you don't have a right to opt out. You're going to be, if you're not punished by the teacher, which you probably will be, you'll be ostracized by the other kids. So you say the pledge. But no, in Christian school, and we were never told we had a right to opt out. And I don't think it would have gone well if we tried. We'd probably have been paddled. Um, (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, they typically use corporal punishment. Um, And many of them still do. I I know Heritage does not anymore, kind of surprisingly. But um, many of them still use corporal punishment. Many of them still have, I think... I guess I guess I don't know the data on this, but anecdotally, a lot of them still have skirt checks, you know, and and they would humiliate a girl publicly in front of her entire class, you know, if if her skirt is above the knee, you know, the teacher will say, oh, I think your skirt's too short. Come up and kneel. Um, that certainly happened at Heritage when when I was in school. And then if the girl's skirt was too short, she had to go change into whatever you know, ratty sweatpants were available in the nurse's office or whatever, or else you'd have to just sit in the pres- in the principal's office all day or go home. 
Um, sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. But yeah, so in addition to saying the pledge to the American flag, we also had to say the pledge to the Christian flag and the pledge to the Bible. And uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole weird history there, but it's probably a little bit of a rabbit trail. <laughs> so are these pledges fairly universal within this movement space? Like, is it the same pledge from Christian school to Christian school? Typically, yes. Um, there are at least two versions of the pledge to the Christian flag, uh, which, by the way, you know, for those who don't know, was a thing that was developed in, I believe, the early 20th century, but maybe the late 19th. Don't quote me exactly on when it was created, but it was created by, you know, more liberal Protestants for the time who were for ecumenism. And so there is a version of the pledge to the Christian flag that ends with some nice sentiments about brotherhood, but you know, the one that is typically used in evangelical spaces ends with one savior, uh, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. Not for all, wow. just for all who believe. <laughs> just so we're clear there, this is very anti-pluralist. No namby-pamby brotherhood stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I mean, these are deeply political spaces, it sounds like. I mean, the picture you paint is a fascinating one, uh, but also really points to the underlying agenda, right? The the alignment in the Christian homeschooling network and in Christian schools. Can you talk a little bit about this agenda? What is the the worldview that drives these educational mm -hmm. spaces? Yeah, well, they're heavily influenced by Christian dominionism. I know you asked about dominionism earlier, and I didn't exactly go into that. So dominionism is a kind of broad umbrella term for various forms of Christian theology and ideology that um, advocate for Christian and, of course, the right kind of Christian, right? This is all about right-wing, you know, conservative, authoritarian, nationalist, fasci Christians, right? Those are the only right kind of Christian. They're the ones who should be in control. They're supposed to control society, right? So there was this movement. Um, called Christian Reconstruction, and it's still around. Christian Reconstructionism is still around, but there are very few people who identify with the term. And so when you bring up Christian Reconstructionism, people are very dismissive, like, oh, that's very fringe. Uh, it was something that was, you know, developed by this hardline Calvinist named R.J. Rushduni and, um, and his son-in-law, Gary North, in the 1960s and the 1970s. And um, their version of Dominion is a kind of, you know, we build the kingdom of God on earth, transform society in preparation for Christ to come back, dominionism. Uh, and homeschooling is a big part of how they believe um, you should do that. Uh, over time, as Christian Reconstructionism developed, some Christian Reconstructionists uh, argued that homeschooling is the only proper biblical way to um, educate your children because the Bible only places uh, authority over children on parents, not on the church. Uh, and others are like, well, it's okay for parents to delegate that authority to the church, so Christian schools are also okay. That was actually a big division within, you know, the thoroughgoing um, Christian Reconstructionist crowd. Um, and yeah, there was never a lot of people who called themselves Christian Reconstructionists. But the movement nevertheless had influence because Christian Reconstructionists, people like Gary North and later Kevin Swanson, who listeners might remember that um, I believe it was 
during the 2016 primaries, Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee uh, went to an event with Kevin Swanson where he talked about how gay people should be subjected to the death penalty just for being gay, right? So um, they developed the curricula that are widely used in um, in Christian schools and in homeschooling. And, and they preach this biblical worldview uh, in which God is supposed to have authority over everything. And, and, and these concepts, you know, someone who was, you know, went to Christian school like me may not have heard of Rushton or North. I mean, I honestly don't remember hearing about them until I was older and starting to kind of research these things. But you hear Christian worldview, uh, you hear these calls to action, and and you can trace the influence there. If you look into the networks, who created the curricula, who created the structures, who created the lobbies, and that is done very well by a religious studies scholar, Julie Ingersoll, who is um, a professor at the University of North Florida. And she wrote an excellent book on this. So if you want to understand how Christian Reconstructionist, specifically Christian Reconstructionist, Dominionist ideas sort of became just infused throughout this whole Christian schooling and Christian homeschooling movement, I would recommend her book. It's called Building God's Kingdom. Uh, and it it traces those influences uh, on this movement very well. And then, you know, there's also the sort of more charismatic Pentecostal um, Seven Mountains Dominionism. and, and all of these ideas are just kind of there in a heady mix, you know, in the evangelical milieu these days. Uh, a lot of evangelicals, historically, certainly when I was a kid, believed in, and this is getting, you know, sort of into the weeds, but believed in um, what is called a pre-tribulation rapture, right? So Christ is going to come and take up all the, the Christians, you know, before all the apocalyptic horrors get really horrible. Um, but the Christian Reconstructionists, in fact, believe that uh, as they, they are what we call, you know, post-millennial, they, uh, in terms of their eschatology, which is the theological word for the study of the end times, right? They believe that, you know, you have to build the kingdom of God on earth and then Christ will come back and reign. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, while the Christians who believed in this um, pre-millennial dispensationalist version of the rapture, in some cases were somewhat politically quiescent for some of the 20th century. By the late 20th century, they're all about still trying to take power, you know, fighting the quote demons, you know, um, fighting against the demonic forces. And, And there's an old thread too that, I mean, I think you can trace all the way back to Puritanism and this idea of providence, right? And this idea that God has a special national calling for the United States. That's, that's very popular. So it all gets kind of mixed up, but The bottom line is uh, most of these kinds of Christians believe that Christians should be in charge and that if uh, our country is allowing very sinful policies to be in place, like, you know, legal abortion and um, queer people having rights, then it will be punished by God. And and, uh, if, on the other hand, Christians take control, it will be blessed by God. Um, the thoroughgoing Christian Reconstructionists, you know, were catastrophists. They typically, and, and you still see these beliefs among sort of like the, the zero hedge and the buy gold kind of people and those kind of conspiracy theorists and right wing Christians who are in those circles, um, the libertarians, they believe that society will collapse. And this is what, this is how the homeschooling movement kind of started with Christian Reconstructionists, this idea that eventually our society, because it's so godless, is going to collapse and we will be preparing, you know, generations of children who have not been corrupted by 
our society who have been raised only under proper biblical authority to take over when that happens. And funny thing there, Gary North, um, you know, one of the, the original Christian Reconstructionists and Rushdie's son-in-law, though they, of course, had a big falling out, and, you know, they disagreed on the whole homeschooling only versus Christian schools are okay thing. North was a longtime economic advisor to Ron Paul. Um, so the guy was not without influence. Um, in, in some Christian evangelical circles, he's known as Scary Gary, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> This is fascinating. I mean, this is the thing with with homeschooling in general, Christian homeschooling in particular. It's such an opaque movement, right? There's you very little insight unless you are in those spaces as to what is happening and what sort of the quality of education and the narratives. And I mean, truly what you're telling us, the politicization of children in these educational spaces. Uh, so you, you call it going down the rabbit hole. But honestly, it's, I mean, truly fascinating to hear. Um I want to move us into what look like seemingly unrelated sociopolitical trends and their intersection with uh, Christian schools and Christian homeschooling. You talk about the elite culture warrior track, and you've already sort of hinted towards this, but can you give our listeners an overview of how so-called culture war issues like book bans and the broader anti-critical race theory and anti-trans movements intersect with Christian schooling? How does Christian schooling interact with Save the Children conspiracies, including anti-vaxxing and QAnon? And then you talk about sort of the role that parents play biblically, but what role does parents' rights and the parents' rights narrative play in connecting these dots? Sure. Well, so the parental rights rhetoric um, has always been uh, a, a big part of the homeschooling advocacy sort of scene. Um, the idea that only parents have designated authority from God over their children and, you know, the state interfering with that is this just nefarious, awful thing. And, and in these evangelical communities, there's a lot of distrust of CPS um, for the wrong reasons. I mean, there are sometimes right reasons to, you know, be somewhat critical of CPS, although I certainly think it should exist. Right. But I mean, I know that here in Oregon, for example, because I, I know someone pretty well who actually works, uh, as a, as a screener for the Oregon child abuse hotline. Um, here they have, you know, trainings to, to try to overcome the historical racial biases that definitely, influence decisions on, you know, children to place, which children to take from their parents and place in the foster care system and that sort of thing. And again, this is uneven throughout the country, but, um, you know, evangelicals are just like, no, the state has no say in what I do to my kids. And, you know, God says we have to beat our kids in order to save their souls. And they're sinful from the very time they're born and we should spank babies. And I am not making this up and we should hit them with, and, and, you know, just in case they might see someone who might try to report us, try to hit them with things that will really sting but not leave marks like industrial glue sticks. They literally have these conversations, right? Like, um, but uh, yeah, so homeschooling we know became, it just kind of surged in terms of the number of people doing it during the pandemic for somewhat obvious reasons, I guess. People were stuck at home anyway and, and parents, many parents decided to try homeschooling in those conditions, understandably, but uh, it, it was also very deeply intertwined with anti-vax and anti-mask, you know, anti-public health um, ideology. 
uh, among the Christian right. So just like you see all these churches being defiant of mask mandates and not having in-person meetings and saying, well, how is a grocery store a necessary business, but a church is not? Um, <laughs> gee, how? That, you know, a, a lot of the, the people who pulled their kids out of school for political and religious reasons did so because they didn't like mask mandates. They didn't like enforced public health initiatives. They believed in sort of COVID conspiracy theories. And yes, they use this kind of protect the children rhetoric that is there in QAnon and is kind of a rehashed version of 1980s satanic panic, protect the kids rhetoric for people who were externalizing their own demons and coming to terms with like the revelation of child sex abuse, which had been, you know, known about to some degree before and, and physical abuse of children, like severe physical child abuse. I think the discussions, if I remember correctly about that among, you know, doctors, for example, at their own uh, professional organizations start in around the 1940s, that they understand that they're seeing fra bone fractures that, you know, couldn't just happen randomly. Uh, but it's a long time before America is really able to start facing the issue of child abuse. And I believe CPS is founded in around the early 70s. Don't quote me exactly, but sometime around there, 60s or 70s. And, and so these discussions are happening, too, in the 1970s uh, and 80s. And they're fueling anxieties and anxious people who don't deal with their trauma or the problems in their communities in a healthy way tend to externalize their their demons and, you know, come up with wild conspiracies and scapegoat outgroups. That happened then and it's happening again now with QAnon where, oh, yes, there's all kinds of grooming and child abuse happening. It's all these Democrats and Hollywood elites who are harvesting adrenochrome. And, and we know, of course, there's been very a lot of revelations, you know, in recent years about major um, sexual misconduct, child sex abuse, and um, other kinds of child abuse scandals in uh, evangelical churches. Like this is all coming to light now, a bit later than the major revelations about, you know, the Catholic church and its cover-ups. And Probably the reason that we're only having this reckoning in evangelicalism now has something to do with its decentralized nature. There's not a pope, right? So when the structure is so, you know, so centralized, perhaps it's easier to start to see the cover-up once things start to come to light. You know where the buck stops. Um, but now we're seeing this too uh, quite a bit, you know, is coming to light about the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. And once again, they're pointing the fingers at other people, you know, liberals, Hollywood, queers. And um, it's it, it, this this moral panic mindset is leading to, you know, the groomer rhetoric and Moms for Liberty trying to ban books and don't say gay laws. And, um, and, and yeah, it's all of a piece with and I think ultimately, to some extent anyway, stems from American white supremacy. Right. That's sort of the the original sin that uh, these groups can't admit to their complicity in or that it even really existed. Um, so I think that's kind of where they start coming up with conspiracy theories. Right. To always point the finger some somewhere else. And um, when you do that, you know, you brook no dissent. You hear no criticism. You gravitate toward ideologies that give you a sense of absolute certainty 
because that makes you feel safe, you know, sort of sometimes. Obviously, you're also very, very afraid, but you tell yourself, oh, Jesus will win in the end. And we have to stop the liberals from killing babies. <laughs> and we have to believe the children. Never mind that, you know, when they tell us the things we want to hear. <laughs> right, exactly. When they're telling us exactly what we want to hear. The idea that you have just presented sort of, of externalizing their demons, I think, is a really compelling framework for understanding culture war narratives. Um, and especially sort of the application of um, sort of child sex panic and sort of the intersection between those panics that we're seeing now, we've seen over the decades, and then the way it reinforces this idea that children are only safe in homeschooling environments, right? They're uh, they're only safe under the dominion of their parents, um, I think is a fascinating framework. Only, only then can you protect their purity in every right. sense of the word, right? And that purity of focus, emphasis, is very deeply rooted in American racism, of course, but then it expands to, I mean, it's also, it, it's also part and parcel of misogyny and uh, anti-LGBTQ animus and, and so forth. But ultimately, I mean, originally it's about making sure there's no, quote, miscegenation, making sure, you know, white women are protected from black men um, when they're, of course, much more likely to be raped, you know, by members of their own family. <laughs> than some random right. dude on the street. So Chrissy, at the beginning of our conversation, towards the beginning, you mentioned the HSLDA, and I will let you define that ad the acronym for us um, when you give your answer, but I want to talk a little bit about um, what's going on below the surface of the homeschool movement. So on the surface, advocacy for Christian homeschooling is styled as individual families fighting for their rights to control all aspects of their children's lives, as we've just been discussing. However, not too far below the surface are the major institutions and political players who are organizing and resourcing these parents, their legal challenges, and their lobbying efforts. What are these institutions and who are the individuals at the head of them? So the HSLDA has been around since the 1980s and has been very effective at um, successfully advocating for deregulation and litigating and winning court cases for deregulation uh, of homeschooling in the United States since that time. But if you want to know who else is pushing this agenda and, and why, um, so I, I did this report, as you know, for PRA uh, a couple of years ago, right, about um, this initiative called Public School Exit. And when I thought about doing that report, uh, I just, I'd seen their, their press release and I was appalled that they were basically celebrating the pandemic. I mean, I talked to one of the guys behind the movement over email later and he of course denied it, that they were celebrating it, but they were like, home, you know, the pandemic presents a great opportunity to get children out of the godless indoctrination centers that are our state schools. You know, they call them government schools, actually. Usually they call them government schools because they hate the government. I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of overlap here with the, you know, sort of anti-government type patriot conspiracy theorists. So I was like, wow, these people are literally saying, isn't it great that we have a global pandemic? This means we can get more kids into our, you know, radicalized through homeschooling. So I looked into who's behind this and it's the players that you, you might expect. Um, at the grassroots level, um, public school exit was, um, you know, largely being um, developed by members of the John Birch Society. 
with also involvement and, and backing from members of the Council for National Policy. So those are those are the people at the top who um, are very much for uh, undermining public schools in any way they can, because again, they're also the same people who want to have uh, as much control as they can over our society and politics in general by shrinking the federal government down to the size that you can drown it in a bathtub, to use the classic phrasing. They're, they don't like the government. They don't think there should be a department of education because if there's not, you know, no one's going to challenge uh, Southern schools or even conservative schools in the North from teaching lost cause narratives about the Civil War and the antebellum South, for example. Uh, oh, and oh, by the way, in Christian schools and Christian homeschooling environments, you get very much get the lost cause stuff. I mean, I just remember hearing all the time about, oh, what a godly, what godly men uh, you know, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee were, they just prayed all the time. And Lee, I mean, he wasn't really fighting for slavery. He was, but also slavery wasn't that bad, but he was fighting for his home state of Virginia. He just couldn't raise his sword against his home country. Wasn't that just, you know, admirable? Um, <laughs> you, you get, you get that kind of narrative. Um, they obviously want to protect, uh, ultimately, you know, white male patriarchal power and the power of, of uh, wealthy elites. And um, Christianity is an excellent vehicle for, for doing that, they, they've found. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, who is it? It's, it's the CNP, it's the Heritage Foundation, it's the usual suspects. <laughs> the DeVosses, I believe, are, are at the forefront of defund public education so that there are no choices beyond homeschooling. Right. And since the pandemic, we've seen not only a surge in homeschooling numbers, although it has pulled, fallen back a little bit in the last couple of years. And you have to look at state, you kind of have to sort through state by state data for this, by the way, to the extent that it's there. I don't think we really have national data, but it seems pretty clear that, yeah, homeschooling shot up, pulled back a little bit, but it's still higher than 2020 levels, significantly higher. And, um, we're also seeing renewed vigor in the school choice movement. And it's all of a piece and it's all supported by, you know, Moms for Liberty and Ron DeSantis's fangirls and fanboys. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this movement is that it, it is really the intersection of so many far right movements that PRA is tracking as well. I mean, you really see the ways in which uh, dominionism uh, manifests in sort of this debate over, over funding public education, over funding charter schools, over uh, funding religious schools. Um, you know, it's it's such a good uh, a good case study for how the Christian right operates at a policy level um, and at a cultural level too. So, you know, we've we've had a really fascinating conversation about the character, the quality, um, the agenda of the Christian homeschooling movement in Christian schools. What is the strategic defense against these movements? And where do you see the next front in the battle against Christian supremacy? How can we resist and build true separation of church and state, but also religious pluralism in its place? I mean, clearly, you know, it's, it's very hard under current circumstances, right? Because we're frankly getting our asses handed to us uh, in, in these political battles. But I, I think if parents who are homeschooling for the right reasons and want their kids to be uh, exposed to diversity and different perspectives and 
to get a good education uh, and just, you know, have the resources that they may need for various reasons and to be protected from bullying. Parents who are doing that, if they would stop just going along with the homeschool advocacy organizations that are constantly telling them the government's coming from you, you don't want regulation and start supporting sensible regulation, I think they could win some state and local battles. The parents have to get on board. And if homeschooling really isn't primarily a right-wing Christian thing, which is what a lot of you know liberal homeschooling parents or leftist homeschooling parents want to tell you now, oh, that's just an outdated view of things, or that's a biased view of things. It's not really. But if you want to prove that it isn't, or you want to make it not, then you need to go talk to your politicians about instituting just some simple basic protections for children. You know, make sure they're required to see a mandated reporter. Make sure they get medical care. You know, don't side with the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers and, you know, advocate for some standards in the curricula. And I know that's a dicey area, right? Because, you know, standards in curricula can, um, in, in certain states under certain political uh, conditions, they can, they can make sure that your children's child is learning the wrong thing. Exhibit A, Florida. But um, <laughs> Florida today. But um, there should be, you know, some kind of standards for what children are learning. And, and these kinds of extreme disinformation-packed evangelical curricula, like Accelerated Christian Education, uh, Becca and Bob Jones, it shouldn't fly. You know, you're teaching kids false things. It's uh, it's it's a hard sell, but I think parents need to be really involved and win and win local battles. And then I think we also just um, nationally we need to work on changing the narrative. And and parents could very much homeschooling parents who do it the right way could be very much involved in that too, if they would realize that the HSLDA is not their friend. Um, and many of them don't. It's weird, right? So. Um, I think messaging is important because ultimately, if you if you can change the narrative, you can you can change the political possibilities of the future. Uh, but I think first it's going to be local and state battles, and only later is it going to be really possible to get some policy wins at the at the federal level. That's a I mean that's a really strategic move, right? To have homeschooling parents themselves be at the forefront of calling for regulation. Uh, for putting the onus on the state to actually protect the children. I think that that's um, sort of a fascinating approach. Um, one that I'm also, you know, really interested into is this idea around uh, defending against anti-trans um, rhetoric is that children have agency and are, you know, sovereign people and sort of this parents' right narrative, rights narrative styles children as possessions and sort of how do mm -hmm. we change that political narrative and make children themselves political actors who have a voice, who have self-determination, um, who have a say over their lives and their bodies. I mean, I think that sort of um, putting that emphasis on protecting the children in a way that does not make them objects is another sort of really compelling narrative, one that I'm just starting to see, uh, especially in, in, in sort of the anti-trans, anti-medical transition narratives um, that <clears throat> predominate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think we do need to uh, support uh, children's rights initiatives, uh, children's rights advocacy, this idea that, you know, children are full 
human beings and you know they uh, are at certain when they're at certain developmental stages obviously they can't make all the decisions for themselves but that doesn't mean that parents should just be able to do whatever they want you know hit them because god said so because religious freedom for example um so and i should say one of my major influences on how i think about uh what might represent an effective uh political response to uh the uh, homeschooling advocacy movement and you know just the christian right in general and their approaches to parents rights and that sort of thing uh is ryan staller um or i think he publishes under rl staller and uh, he's got a great blog he's a survivor of um you know right-wing christian homeschooling himself and uh, i just want to give him a shout out here um but yeah, I, I think one thing we could also do at the national level in this regard is to continue to just, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but just continue uh, pressing uh, you know, our senators to um, ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, I mean, we're the only UN member state that hasn't, right? And a lot of people don't know that um, in the United States, kids don't have a federal right to an education. Everything depends on your state and really your family and, you know, what sort of milieu you grow up in. But there should be a national right to a good education. It's absurd that there isn't, but there isn't. Um, and then, you know, something else that I've learned in particular from Tora Bontrager and, um, you know, ex-Amish or non-compliant Amish people who have come out of the Amish communities is... Um, that, you know, there's a long history of religious freedom um, litigation here that we need to work on strategically planning to reverse, though obviously that's not going to happen anytime soon. But if you go back all the way to the 1972 Wisconsin v. Yoder decision, right, that uh, ruled that Amish children do not have to go to school for the same number of years as, uh, you know, non-Amish children, because of religious freedom. But what about the freedom of the kids? There's a lot of now, you know, adult kids who escaped from those communities who very much resent uh, that they were deprived of an education in their childhood and had to make it up later in life. So Tora Bontrager is another one of my influences and, you know, a child, a children's rights advocate who I admire and I would encourage people to look her up. But um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the legal precedents that we ultimately need to to get overturned, Wisconsin v. Yoder. It's, it's the reason that, you know, you can't currently mount a challenge to um, any religious community that says, oh, we only send our kids to school through sixth grade or whatever, you know, whether that's Amish or ultra-Orthodox Judaism or any, any number of things. And it, it's also part of the reason that it's so hard to regulate what happens in Christian schools. And some Christian schools are not the elite culture warrior track. Some do not prepare children to succeed at anything outside the little local evangelical bubble. Um, so I got a weirdly good education in, in many respects in the Christian school that I, the Christian schools that I went to with a whole lot of extreme indoctrination and, uh, you know, anti-queer views and so forth and baked in racism that I didn't understand till later. And, and I mean, part of that's, I think that's part of the reason, too, that I didn't even recognize my own queerness until I was in my early 30s, because it was just also 
pushed down and, and, you know, rejected as sinful in, in those milieus. But yeah, that's, that's part of the fight. You know, it's, it's recognizing that religious freedom has its, has its limits and that parents' rights should be limited too. They don't have the right to absolutely dominate and crush their children's spirits. And by the way, breaking a child's will is something that is literally prescribed in conservative Christian communities. Um, it's a James Dobson thing from way back. It's not healthy. <laughs> and that's Midwestern <laughs> understatement. <laughs> Well, I must say, I am glad that your uh, weird, albeit oppressive and um, and racialized, but high quality education is being now deployed to dismantle this movement. Uh, we're very glad that you um, are taking what you've learned and using it to help us uh, understand what we're up against, how it impacts the people inside the movement and how it impacts uh, the policy and the culture of our country more widely. And I really appreciate your work, Chrissy. I, I know everything you publish, you know, for our religion dispatches, for PRA, some of our best work that we put out there is thanks to you. And thank you so much for coming on the pod with us today. Well, thank you so much, Cookie. And um, I want to also thank PRA and religion dispatches for, for helping me to get you know, into a place where I was able to write for a wider public, you know, out of academia where, I mean, my special, like my, my field is actually modern Russian history. And I do occasionally write things about foreign policy, but I talk much more about, you know, the Christian right and American politics anymore. But yeah, I, I mean, I had long admired the work of, of uh, PRA when um, Cole Parker reached out to me after seeing something that I published in Religion Dispatches. And if you know, RD hadn't taken a chance on me back in the day as someone who hadn't published something for the public anywhere and really worked with me to help me develop a, a, a voice for popular audiences, which academics have a hard time with. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today. And the stuff that I've written for PRA, some of the stuff that I'm most proud of, um, you know, because I don't get to do a lot of deep dive reports. And I, I also have to just say thank you to Catherine Joyce. I know she's not with PRA anymore, but she was my editor for that work, and it's much stronger because of her. So I really appreciate you all, too, and I'm glad to, to be here. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I can put my uh, weird background to good use, I guess. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Thanks so much, Chrissy. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wileman. Harini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials, and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time. <laughs>